Hello, and welcome to the All 80s Movies Podcast, a podcast where we talk about the blockbusters, the flops, and everything in between from one of the freshest decades for movies, the 1980s. I'm your host, Bill Banton. Along with me on this journey, revisiting 80s movies, is my co-host, Jason Masick. Hello, Jason. Go ahead. Make my day. That's right, listeners. We are discussing, with spoilers aplenty, the 1983 action movie, Sudden Impact, Distributed by Warner Brothers, it stars Clint Eastwood, Sandra Locke, and Pat Hingle. Directed by Clint Eastwood, this movie is rated R with a running time of 1 hour and 57 minutes. So, what is this movie about? What's on the box? If you grew up in the 1980s and went to your local video store to rent this movie, you would find this description on the back of the VHS box. It is What's on the Box. Take it away, Jason. Go ahead. Make your day. San Francisco homicide detective Harry Callahan doesn't just stop crime, he stops it dead. In fact, he's left so many cadavers around his superiors, sensitive to outcries of police brutality, send him on assignment to outlying San Paolo until things cool down. But wherever Harry goes, things just get hotter. Clint Eastwood returns as tough cop Callahan in sudden impact. The inspector's a little older even dirtier, and the world around him hasn't gotten any better, which means sudden impact is filled with explosive knock-your-block-off excitement. In each of the previous Dirty Harris sagas, 1971's Dirty Harry, 1973's Magnum Force, 1976's The Enforcer, Eastwood powerfully captured the public's awareness. But 1983's sudden impact packs the biggest wallop of them all. In addition to fierce, mythic dimension, the film boasts the line that became a national catchphrase. Callahan's scowled, go ahead, make my day. Sandra Locke, the gauntlet, the outlaw Josie Wales and director star of Ratboy, co-stars as a rape victim who's systematically gunning down the gang who brutally attacked her. Harry's sworn to stop killers. But will he stop this citizen whose outside-the-system tactics are similar to his own? Find out, and make your day. Sudden Impact. Sudden Impact. So that was What's on the Box. Jason, we finally got around to our first Clint Eastwood movie. Here we are. It took us so long. Oh, man. 40 years later, our first Clint Eastwood movie, the fourth in the Dirty Harry series, Oh boy, what a way to introduce Clint on our podcast. Amazing. I have to say, that synopsis was about as twisted and strange as the movie itself. I personally loved the part that reads, in addition to a fierce mythic dimension. A mythic dimension. I don't know if I would have used those words to describe sudden impact. That was fun to read, regardless. So yeah, man. The man, the myth, the legend. Here we go. Clint Eastwood. The living legend, Clint Eastwood. What are our earliest memories of Sudden Impact? Here are my earliest memories of this film from 1983. As I mentioned, yeah, that's 40 years ago. My goodness. My earliest memories, Bill Bant, are nothing. Absolutely nothing. I've never seen this movie. Really? I thought maybe I had seen parts of it, but I was totally incorrect. I have never seen Sudden Impact. So there you go. What are your earliest? I'm just kidding. I'm just going to say this much. Uh, Since I have nothing, I was just going to speak very shortly on my earliest memories of Clint Eastwood. I mean, what can I say? I just have really warm, fond memories 
of watching the Sergio Leone directed Spaghetti Trilogy with my dad. That was my introduction to the one and only Clint Eastwood. A fistful of dollars for a few dollars more, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I could possibly say, outside of Harrison Ford, I believe Eastwood was probably my introduction to what I felt was the consummate leading man. Tall, handsome, commanding, powerful, brooding, intense, capable, a hero, a gunslinger, a man's man. I mean, he truly reinforced all of the male stereotypes. He just had the look, the scowl, the squint. He is the mysterious tough guy. He is the man with no name. And that's what I wanted to be, you know, growing up, looking up to a movie star, if you will. Honestly, I actually never took to the Dirty Harry films, the Dirty Harry series. And that may explain why I've never seen Sudden Impact, although I've seen parts of the others. I can recall watching Dirty Harry, the first in the franchise, once a long time ago. I know I've seen The Deadpool, the final film in the Dirty Harry series, at some point, because I do remember Jim Carrey being in it. (laughs) But maybe I saw a bit, like I said, bits and pieces of Magnum Force and The Enforcer at some point. But who knows? So outside of his role as an actor, I didn't come to realize that he was a director too uh, until much, much later. But yeah, I just uh, associate Clint Eastwood, my early memories of him as a movie star, watching his movies with my dad. And I often associate my dad with Clint Eastwood because of uh, I just always looked up to my dad in in the same way, but as a a real life hero. There you go. Those are my earliest memories, very briefly. What are your earliest memories of sudden impact, Bill Band? Okay, for me, as for the Dirty Harry movies, I think this was the last one of the five I had seen. So there's five Dirty Harry movies in total. Uh, I saw the Deadpool first, which was the fifth one, uh, then Dirty Harry, and then the other three, because there was a Dirty Harry marathon on one of the cable stations. And I sat one afternoon. I was like, all right, I got to sit down and watch all these. So that's how I saw uh, the other three. And the three middle ones, I get mixed up. No one had Tyne Daly in it, who moved on to Cagney and Lacey. One had Dirty Cops. And the other, Sun Impact, um, had Sandra Locke, who seemed to be in all the Clint Eastwood movies I had seen as a child. Now, for you, you're saying your first recollection of Clint Eastwood was the Spaghetti Westerns. For me, it was actually the Any Which Way But Loose series. Sure. Those two films. That was the first one. I think the first one I actually saw was in the drive-in. And that had Bruce Gordon and the Clyde, the uh, orangutan. That was my introduction to Clint Eastwood. So I really didn't know that much about Dirty Harry until this movie had come out. I didn't know that there was a whole series of these movies. And then I felt like every movie that came out was, I thought The Gauntlet at one time was a Dirty Harry movie. I thought Tightrope was a Dirty Harry movie. I didn't know which was which. But I did eventually see all five of them. I do remember Ronald Reagan quoting the, mm-hmm. the quote that you said in the beginning, go ahead and make my day. And that was all over the news. And Ronald Reagan, who was the president back then in the 80s, uh, had his ties to Hollywood. So it was he always tried to tie in some kind of movie thing every year for it. And this was a big deal when he said that one. I couldn't remember. I had to look it up what he what he said it about. For some reason, I thought it was uh, something with uh, Gorbachev. But I guess it was supposedly with Congress and raising taxes. And he wasn't going to let that happen. So I do remember that watching this again. I think I had only seen it one time. This was the second, third viewing for me of this movie. I would say of the ones that I remember, I definitely remember the the Deadpool and Dirty Harry. Dirty Harry, I've definitely seen the most. I've seen that one a a ton of times. 
I was excited to go back and, and check out this chapter of the Dirty Harry series. It's almost like a first watch for me at this point. Copy that. That's great, man. And I should have mentioned, definitely, I was familiar with the iconic line, one of the most iconic quotes of all time, go ahead, make my day. So I was familiar with that, not being aware that it was from this particular film in the Dirty Harry series. The other line, of course, being, do you feel lucky, punk? Right. And that's from the first film. That's from Dirty Harry. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's all I got. All right. So this is your first time watching this, Jason. So what are your initial thoughts of it? Yeah, let's get into it. Well, I'm still going to just stick with Clint Eastwood for now. He is our writer and director of this film, Dirty Harry Callahan himself, Inspector Harry Callahan. Clint Eastwood, you know, had made several television appearances leading up to his star-making roles in the Italian spaghetti westerns, uh, starting with A Fistful of Dollars in 1964. Our guy goes a little ways back, and then he becomes a full-blown Western action movie star, doing numerous Westerns. Too many for me to name. I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with a few of them. And then until he, uh, yeah, dons the titular role of Dirty Harry in Dirty Harry in 1971. He also had his directorial debut with Play Misty for me in 1971. But here's his 80s snapshot, because we do do an 80s podcast here. He was in Bronco Billy in 1980, Any Which Way You Can, also in 1980, Firefox in 82, Honky Tonk Man in 82, Sudden Impact Here in 83, Tightrope in 84, City Heat in 84, Pale Rider in 85, Heartbreak Ridge in 86, The Deadpool in 88, and Pink Cadillac in 89. He also directed most of those movies. Outside of Any Which Way You Can, City Heat, the Deadpool and Pink Cadillac. Those are the ones he did not direct. All the other ones he did direct. So Clint Eastwood, an extremely prolific artist, known for his quick, fast-paced directorial style behind the camera, behind the scenes. What can we say? He's an American icon, and he's still directing today at age 93. He's even got a movie in production right now called Juror Number 2. Uh, moving on to our female lead in this film, the one and only Sandra Locke. That's not Sandra. That's Sandra with an O. Sandra Locke playing the role of Jennifer Spencer. She is known for the outlaw Josie Wales in 76, the gauntlet in 77, every which way but loose in 78. But here's her 80s. Bronco Billy in 80, any which way you can in 80 and sudden impact here in 83. Those films sound familiar. Obviously, yeah, there was a trend here of working with Clint Eastwood. And yes, they did have a relationship from about 1976 all the way to early 1989, which makes for some very interesting reading if you want to do a little research on that. And after Sudden Impact, and I'm stepping on a little bit of our research here, her career wasn't quite the same uh, as she got a little bit older, and she did not care to take on the older parts And then, unfortunately, yes, uh, Sandra Locke passed away in November of 2018 at age 74. But needless to say, she had her moment, and she was a beauty and a talented actress. So getting into my initial thoughts of Sudden Impact from 1983. We start off with just full-on credits and aerial nighttime shots of San Francisco and some funky instrumental music. All right. And that's it. It's just the funky music and shots of San Fran, but it is what it is. We are getting into the beginning of the movie. I thought this was funny. This is an initial thought. You notice 
it's all these aerial shots. And back then, you know, we didn't have drones, right? So we're not having drone shots. It's a lot of helicopter shots. That's what we just call them. That's what, that's how they got a lot of those big aerial shots of the downtown area, the cities and the landscapes, et cetera. And in the beginning of this film, it seems to go from the nighttime shots to kind of a dusk type of shot where it switches from that shaky helicopter shot as a shot coming down onto a hillside where there's like a lookout point where there's a car parked overlooking the ocean and the bay, if you will. And it goes from the shaky helicopter shot to like a steady cam or crane shot of the car, which is much more stable. I just thought that was funny. It was like, they were like, okay, this is way too shaky. We're going to switch. It's the same shot, but it's just a much more steady shot. And it's very obvious. I just thought that was funny. A funny way to start the movie. And then just initial thought, you're just waiting for Clint to show up. And he does uh, shortly after the cold open where a murder takes place and it cuts to a courtroom scene. And Clint Eastwood, dirty, hairy Callahan is running a little bit late and he is uh, walking towards the courtroom, and we see that face. We see the sunglasses on. We see the scowl. It's the look, man, and there he is, the man, the myth, the legend. Almost immediately, there's just such a specific feel to this film. It's a different era of cop drama action filmmaking, and it's definitely a throwback to the 70s kind of exploitive, violent cop drama. So speaking of which... We get into this courtroom scene where uh, someone who is being accused of a crime gets off because of an illegal search, thanks to the dramatic actions of Harry Callahan. And so this guy gets off, and of course, Callahan runs into this character in the elevator and ends up assaulting him, breaking all the laws with impunity. And... That's just where I was immediately reminded of all the tropes we often see then after in the 80s and in, into the 90s, to the point that they made parodies of these films. It was It's always the hard-nosed cop that won't let anything stand in his way, even if it means using excessive force. And of course, this causes the police chief or the captain or the lieutenant or the commissioner a major headache and costs the city more in damages with his excesses. That's the main cop, of course, than other failures of his. And of course, our hero cop is then threatened with a demotion that never happens. And he's commanded to take some time off. And we're uh, reminded that our hero badass cop is, of course, of a time long gone. He's a fossil of sorts. And in many ways, this movie is of a time past an echo of the 70s cop exploitation films that uh, I had mentioned. So we get a lot of the tropes here in this 1983 version. I was a little surprised also at the number of one-liners from Dirty Harry in this. Was I, I'm going to ask you, Bill Bant, was do you recall those one-liners kind of coming rapid fire in the previous Dirty Harry films? I don't remember. No, I think this one was really the first one that kind of stepped that up a little bit. Yeah, he yeah. Was more I mean, straight-laced, yeah, throughout. Like I said, in the first one, he does the Do You Feel Lucky Punk, but I think that's about... As sure. silly as it gets, yeah. Yeah, it's just there's a little bit more jokey one-liners, I think, in this one. For instance, there is one line here where uh, this is near the beginning of the film where Callahan approaches a crime boss at a wedding and the crime boss suffers a heart attack and dies. <laughs> and you have Callahan afterwards say, oh, yeah, somebody grabbed their chest. They must have seen the bill. 
meaning the bill for the, the wedding reception regarding that jokey one-liner style there. But um, moving on, the character named Horace King, played by Albert Popwell. Now, I'm watching this movie and I'm going, wait a minute, this this character of Horace King, this African-American gentleman who's he's uh, quite good. I, I think he's great. He seems to be a real character. I like his look. I like his delivery. And he's clearly friends with Dirty Harry in this movie. But I'm like, am I supposed to know this character? He just kind of pops up in the movie. He kind of sneaks up on Dirty Harry in the middle of his target practice. And well, the answer is, are we supposed to know him? Kind of yes and kind of no, because Albert Popwell, and I am stepping on some trivia here, played the character of Mustafa in The Enforcer. He was a pimp in Magnum Force. Then before that, he had an uncredited role as a bank robber in Dirty Harry. So he's been in all the previous Dirty Harry movies in which he was also killed. Spoiler alert. I get the sense that Eastwood and Popwell obviously hit it off, and Eastwood then gives him a larger role in this film. But he just kind of shows up, doesn't really say who he is. It was just really off-putting to me. I'm going to have more on that later. But I liked him at the same time. It was very, very weird. So the structure, here's another initial thought, Bill Bant. The structure of this film was kind of interesting to me because we have two separate storylines to start us off. One being that of Dirty Harry and his issues in dealing with the aftermath of inadvertently killing a crime boss named Threlkiss. How about that for a character name? No, I know. As I had mentioned with the cheesy one-liners, yes, Dirty Harry shows up to a wedding reception and approaches this crime boss named Threlkiss because he accuses him for having uh, killed a hooker previously, a hooker that had to, well, was killed in a very, very vicious way. He accuses the crime boss, Threlkiss, of doing this. The crime boss then has a heart attack, falls dead. As a result, now Dirty Harry is being pursued by all of this crime boss's henchmen, his thugs, his hitmen. So that's not good for Dirty. So we're watching this one storyline kind of unfold. And then simultaneously, we're following the storyline of Jennifer Spencer, played by Sandra Locke. And her story is all about avenging the horrible assault, the horrible rape and assault of herself and her sister by a group of thugs 10 years previous. So we have Dirty Harry's storyline, and then we have Jennifer Spencer's storyline moving concurrently through this film. And we're about 40 minutes into the film before the two storylines converge. They have yet to really intersect outside of one brief scene earlier on where Jennifer Spencer shows up to the crime scene that she had left behind at the cold opening of the film. The film opens with her in a car with another gentleman and they seem to be getting intimate. Well, she shoots this gentleman right in the crotch and then in the head, killing him. And this is the crime scene that Dirty Harry comes on a little bit later. But that's the only intersection at that point. It's very brief. They don't meet each other. They don't speak to one another. They don't actually meet until 40 minutes later. So I thought that was interesting. Here's a shout out to Michelob Beer. I just want to say that. Speaking of a comparison between Clint Eastwood and my dad, my dad used to drink Michelob Beer. I think Michelob was probably one of the first beers I ever had in my life, actually. I don't see Michelob anymore. Oh, and here I wrote this down, Bill Bant, in my notes, because the movie's progressing as I'm taking my notes. I'm like, oh, I, oh, Horace King, he's a cop. Okay, now I know who he is. Great. Moving on. Jennifer Spencer's abstract self-portrait in this movie is quite upsetting. That's an initial thought. We learn in the film that Jennifer Spencer, her character, 
is an artist of sorts. She's dealing with a lot of trauma and uh, she's letting it pour out onto the canvas. She is an artist and she draws an abstract painting of herself. It's really quite upsetting. That's a thought. Again, here I am writing this down. Bill Band, another note. Okay, what is the deal with Horace? I can't, I can't get away from this guy. He shows up in San Paolo. This is later in the film, folks. We'll get to it, I'm sure. He shows up with a bottle of champagne to party with Harry. And I'm like, what is Horace doing here? Why is he here? What purpose does he serve in this movie? I have no idea. It just cracks me up. I'm like, what the hell is going on with Horace? Just have to throw that out there because that's an initial thought. The character of Mick, who is one of the main antagonists in this film, one of, I should say, co-leaders of the thugs, he is pretty creepy. I'll give him that much. And I think, you know, every time I saw him, I was like, man, if they did a comedic parody of this film in particular, this specific film, he would be played by Will Forte. That's my take. Oh, yeah. He totally reminded me of Will Forte. Good call. That's like, oh, Will Forte would kill it. No, no pun intended in this uh, role. So speaking of our antagonists, they are just plain bad. Those were the movies back in the early 80s, man. There's just no nuance whatsoever. They're just bad. They're just all around bad. There's no levels at all. They're just bad guys. That's it. Stock character bad guys. Gotta love them. At an hour and 42 minutes Callahan pulls out the 44 (laughs) Magnum automatic, and I'm finally like, yes, this is what I was waiting for this entire time. Didn't need all the bullshit in between. Just wanted to see Callahan blow the bad guys away with the big gun. And uh, the movie ends, and I was just like, well, okay, that just happened. Spoiler alert, Callahan takes care of the bad guys, and apparently vigilante justice wins the day. Here's my final initial overall thought watching this movie as an adult. I did not see this as a child, as aforementioned. So for me, watching this movie today, it's not what I expected, to be honest. Uh, The movie was a bit clunky. Not sure it's actually directed that well by Eastwood. It's a little slow in parts. Uh, It's downright weird. It's dark. It's violent. A bit misogynistic. It's uh, in a 70s kind of way, man. And I'll be honest, I just didn't really feel very good watching some of it. This was a little rough. I did not care for this movie. I still love Clint Eastwood. Nothing against him. He's still a hero of mine in the movies and all of his accomplishments in the in cinema. He's an icon. But this particular film was not one of his gems. I'll leave it at that for now. What are your initial thoughts, Bill Bant? It's funny. Your last initial thought was actually my first initial thought. So... <laughs> Clint Eastwood, you know, directed this movie and it was the first and only of the Dirty Harry movies that he did do. And I have to say, I was a little disappointed in the direction. To me, it felt like a TV movie that somehow slipped by the ratings board. Hmm. Sure. Outside of the skyline shots, which I thought were really cool. And there is a shot at the end of the movie that I really like and that I'm, I'm going to save that for favorite scenes. I almost felt like he was TV directing this. And this is coming from someone who eventually wins an Oscar for directing. I think if he went back and redid this, this movie would totally look different. Oh, yeah. 100%. I don't think there's many shots that he would keep again. Because some were just kind of weird angles. Mm-hmm. And some of the, it, I don't know, it just didn't seem lit right. That was kind of weird to seeing like Clint Eastwood directed it and then watching like, ah. And it's not like this was his first movie that he directed. Directed a couple before that. And they were certainly... From what I recall, better better direct it. So I, I don't know what happened here. But as you said, too, he's known for 
one take and move on or two takes and move on. I guess he's trying to keep it under budget because that would be more money in his pocket in the, in the long run. Another initial thought is, why do we have to know from the beginning of the movie that Sandra Locke, who played Jennifer, was the killer? I think I was disappointed in that. I would have rather it been a mystery who was killing these people. I know we there's tons of movies where our hero ends up somehow getting mixed with the killer, not knowing that it's the killer. And then there's that confrontation at the end. But I feel like it was needed here. I was just kind of disappointed that I knew right away. And at first I thought it was an accident because when she does that first killing, I was like, oh my God, you could totally tell it's Sandra Locke. Jesus, they're not hiding it. And then when we see her again, we see that she's there at, at the murder scene. So I'm like, oh, they're not hiding this at all. I thought this would kind of be more of a, a mystery. Just We would find out along with Harry Callahan who the murderer was and why this all happened. But now this, this tells you straight up what's going on. So it almost makes, to me, Harry almost secondary for a little bit of the movie. And then mm-hmm. he kind of finally takes over as, as the main character. Yeah, that I, I didn't really like. And then the other thing was, so the whole thing is, is this character Jennifer's going back and killing all the people that raped her and her sister 10 years ago. And we come to find out, spoiler alert, that one of the rapists is the chief of the city that Harry Callahan's in. And the chief doesn't arrest these people because they were friends of his son. I was like, how could you let that happen? Because you you find out this is an isolated incident for most of this group of people. Like you said, these people are evil. They are terrible people. It's like, how are you the chief of this town? How do you live with yourself every day knowing that you're letting these people walk in the street? That was very bothersome to me. When Chief Jennings, spoiler alert, gets killed at the end, I was cool with it. I'm like, dude, you totally get what you deserve. You let these people run amok and commit way worse crime than they did that one night. Not that there's not much you could do worse than what they did, but yeah. just that you could live with that every day for 10 years. That was kind of tough. Oh, yeah. Overall, Dirty Harry, the character, I think is a badass. And Clint himself just covers a lot of the flaws in this movie. But for a fourth movie in a series, this isn't bad compared to, I mean, how many how many movies can you think of that have gotten to a fourth that are decent? I mean, like Mission Impossible comes to mind. I don't think there's many, at least watchable. That's where I would kind of put this. It's certainly nowhere near the best one. It's certainly watchable. So that's my initial thoughts. Yeah, just some great points. Couldn't agree more about the reveal of Sandra Locke, a.k.a. Jennifer Spencer, that character being the the killer at the very open of the film. Uh, it's just kind of like, well, you just let all the air out. Now we know who the killer is, and it's really about watching Harry figure it out. Yeah, uh, fair criticism. I, I, I agree with that. I was surprised by that opening. Are we ready to move into our favorite scenes and moments? Yeah, let's get into it. Favorite scenes or moments from Sudden Impact, Jason. What do you have? All right. I'm sure we'll have some crossover here. I'm going to start with what I call the coffee shop shootout. It is near the beginning of the film. And we've seen Harry in the uh, court scene sequence where somebody got off and it it was on a technicality because of what Harry had done uh, in his illegal search. But after that, you know, he's kind of having a bit of a rough morning, but he's he's walking it off. And speaking of which, he just walks right into the Acorn Cafe. 
and walks up to the counter with his newspaper that he just bought, throws it down on the counter and simply says, Loretta? And Loretta, the waitress behind the counter, knows immediately what to do. She proceeds to pour him a cup of coffee. And then we see shots of some other customers looking on. And it's a kind of a quiet scene. It's too quiet. Loretta herself doesn't speak a word. But she just proceeds to pour the cup of coffee. And then she takes the the sugar and starts pouring the sugar into the coffee and just keeps pouring. She just keeps pouring and pouring. And meanwhile, Harry doesn't notice. He doesn't even care to look up at her. This is just his routine. And it seems to have been his routine for some time. I mean, he's just very comfortable walking in, asking for the coffee and looking at his paper while she just continues to pour sugar into his coffee. And again, some of the other customers are looking on. She finally stops pouring the sugar. And then he looks up and throws a dollar down onto the counter. Very cheap cup of coffee, apparently then leaves the cafe. And so we're just waiting for him to take a sip from his coffee, which he does, and he immediately spits it out. He turns back around to see someone inside the cafe flipping that open-closed sign over to read closed, and obviously he senses something is seriously off. It's still the middle of the morning. The shop can't be closed. So cut to the interior of the cafe when all of a sudden... A man jumps up, pulling a gun, and starts demanding everyone's money and jewelry. He's quickly joined by three other thugs that brandish their guns and begin accosting the customers. When all of a sudden, one of them looks up and sees none other than, yes, Harry Callahan, standing there. He's come in through the back with his cup of coffee. And here are the quotes. This is just a great back and forth. The one thug that looks up and sees Harry Callahan that's come in from the back, he goes, What's you doing, you pighead sucker? And Harry replies with, Every day for the past ten years, Loretta there's been giving me a large black coffee. Today she gives me a large black coffee, only it has sugar in it. A lot of sugar. I just came back to complain. Now you boys put those guns down. And the bad guy says, Say what? He's like, Well, we're not just going to let you walk out of here. And then the bad guy says, Who's we, sucker? And Harry responds with, Smith and Wesson and me. That's when he reaches into his coat and pulls out the gun. And of course, the bad guy tries to fire first, but of course, Harry gets the first shot off and blows him away. And it's just a full-on shootout. And it's just, this is what we signed up for. This is what we watched Dirty Harry for. We want to see Clint Eastwood and his badassery all of his glory with the big revolver, just with the huge resounding gunshots, just blowing away bad guys. That's the action of Dirty Harry. So that's what we get in the scene. He takes out three of the four bad guys and the fourth, who was the initial guy, kind of the leader, he takes one of the waitresses hostage, has a gun to her head, and Harry approaches him with his gun drawn still. And we hear the sirens of all the cops and the cop cars pulling up. And yeah, this last bad guy now is in a standoff with Callahan and they just have that great like back and forth. It's kind of like a shootout scene, you know, in the old West, actually. And there's some good shots here in this particular scene, some nice push ins some nice close ups of each of their faces, that being Dirty Harry and then the, the bad guy with the hostage. And finally, we get the iconic line, the push in 
on Dirty Harry as he says, go ahead, make my day. You almost want, like, I was almost wanting the guy to, like, try to, to get a shot off at Dirty Harry, but he doesn't. He acquiesces and puts the gun down. All the cops rush in and they take him away. And that's it, man. It's just a great, great way to reestablish. If you hadn't seen this, the films previous in the series, this is just clearly a scene to establish, once again, how Dirty Harry is just a badass is the only way to put it, I guess. He's the the ultimate tough guy, and he has the ultimate one-liner there at the very end of the scene. Love it. Yeah, I almost put this in my favorite scenes. What was funny was when watching this, I thought for sure the scene was in one of the other movies. So mm. once again, got jumbled up, uh, but I can't remember which one I thought it was in. But I didn't think it was in this one. And I was kind of like, wait, did this kind of happen in one of the other movies too? I, I wasn't sure. The second reason I did not put it in there is it actually falls in my um, complaint department. Oh, yeah, sure. I'll save it for then. So I was like, oh, I can't say this is one of my favorite scenes. And then I turn around and complain about it. I mean, it's kind of a silly complaint, but I didn't want to do that. So I'm glad that you put this as one of your favorites because you have to have the iconic line somehow tied into this movie. And uh, that is the scene that does it. And yeah, he comes in and just starts kicking ass shooting people left and right in a cafe full of people. He's a good shot, so no one else has anything to worry about there. And I totally agree with you, by the way, Bill Bant, that I could find complaints in all of my favorite scenes, without a doubt, easily. All kinds of holes and complaints. Because <laughs> this movie is just chock full of them. With this type of movie, there is a just-go-with-it factor, a suspension of dis disbelief, kind of knowing what kind of genre film you're getting into. Regardless... There are some problems with these scenes. What's your first favorite scene or moment, Bill Bant? So I went for my first favorite scene, and you did kind of mention it a little bit. And it is when Eastwood goes to see Thrill Kiss in the beginning. Yeah, and sure. It's interesting because in the beginning of the movie, you mentioned that we have the courtroom scene. So you figure, okay, we're going to go back to this person at some point, too, because they get in the elevator and they have a confrontation. So we have that storyline and then we have the storyline of the murder. So you figure, okay, so he's going to have to figure out that someone's going around killing people and what that's all about. And then all of a sudden we have this. So this is kind of a third storyline. I'm like, holy totally. shit, how much are they throwing at this? So after the first two storylines have already been established, we see that there's these um, cops and they're on a stakeout inside a hotel. And lo and behold, Dirty Harry is walking into this hotel. And the cops are like, oh, crap. This is not good. And we don't know what's going on. But we find out that Dirty Harry's pretty much going to crash a wedding. But we don't know why. But there's a funny exchange at the beginning when he goes up to the, the woman that's at the front door. And she goes, uh, may I have your invitation, sir? I'm just here to see Thrill Kiss. And then we see that these kind of two thuggy looking people show up and Clint turns to the woman and says, uh, do you know the uh, emergency phone number for uh, San Francisco General? And the woman's like, yeah, I do. Well, why don't you call them right now and have them send out an ambulance? Tell them there's two sorry looking assholes here with multiple contusions and various abrasions and broken bones. 
And then we see Thrill Kiss's maybe lawyer or some kind of representative come up. And he's like, uh, Harry Callahan, what are you doing here? And he's like, I'm here to see Thrill Kiss and just walks his way in. And this gentleman is like, hey, this is harassment. But he lets Harry go because he's not sure what to expect. So we find out the wedding is for Thrill Kiss's uh, granddaughter. And right. Thrill Kiss sees Harry Callahan coming in and he's pretty smug because he kind of knows that Harry doesn't have anything on him. And he actually invites Harry to sit down at the table. And there's actually an empty seat. But Harry doesn't sit. And Harry tells Thrillkiss that they pulled the dead body of a prostitute out of the water recently. And Thrillkiss is like, oh, yeah, I heard about that read in the paper. And he describes the various things that happened to this poor prostitute that uh, I think her feet were burned, her face was punched in, and all this other damage was done to her and he goes on to say that the prostitute had some high falutin clients and he's kind of inferring that Thrillkiss is one of those clients and Thrillkiss is just kind of laughing it off okay that's great but you have nothing on me so i'm not worried about it and then callahan pulls an envelope out of his jacket and he's like you know maybe this prostitute heard a lot of interesting things from some of these clients and just happened to write them down and happened to send a copy to certain people and so now Thrillkiss is like oh shit I'm actually in trouble because he knows he's probably said stuff to this prostitute not thinking she was going to turn around and say anything and he gets really upset to the fact that he has a heart attack and he passes out on the table and everybody goes to check on Thrillkiss and Harry at first is shocked that this has happened this is not what he expected he was just trying to get a rise out of him and then he goes to walk out of the ballroom. And while he's walking out, uh, you mentioned it too, the same woman at the door is asking what's going on. And he says, oh, he must have seen the bill and hands her the envelope that Harry was showing to Thrillkiss. And she goes to open it up and it's all blank. And he walks out. And now the third storyline in the first 20 minutes of this movie has happened. So now it's, all right, how is this shit all going to tie in together? But... I kind of like this, just how Harry operates. Just skewing the law. He's always walking the fence there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's a fun scene just watching, well, just watching Eastwood dominate and do what he does. That's the thing about Eastwood. You just, every time he's on screen, you just, you never expect him to lose. You just never think he's going to lose. And he never does for the most part until maybe a little bit later in his career where he's playing more flawed characters, maybe even more human characters. But here, yeah, it's just... He's standing over this guy, Threlkiss, and he's pretty much got him dead to rights just verbally. And when he pulls out that envelope, you can just see Threlkiss, his expression go, and he just starts losing his temper, and he knows he's been cornered and has that heart attack. So, But yeah, it, it's great when he uh, walks out and hands that envelope to the, I guess, the uh, hostess. Yeah, yeah uh, hostess. Yeah. Yeah. Great scene. That whole storyline is not even needed in this movie. You could totally cut it out in the movie. It would still be fine. But I did like that scene. I'm glad you brought it up because that leads right into my next favorite scene. And it's my favorite part of the scene is actually a moment, but I'm going to describe the scene. And I'm just calling it taking out the trash. Basically, Threlkiss's henchmen go down. And yeah, it's San Francisco. It's night. And Harry Callahan, inspector, is coming out of some building on a rooftop parking lot. I'm not sure where that was, Bill Bant, but he's... I don't know if that's where he lives, or it wasn't the police precinct, but he's walking out of a building. It looks like he kisses a woman on the cheek, and she locks the glass doors behind 
Oh, I thought he was coming out of a restaurant, to be honest. Okay, sure. I'm not 100% sure, but it's down by the wharf. Yeah, there's rooftop parking. That's all I know. And he's walking to his car. It seems quiet until another car starts slowly pulling up, but not too deftly, as the car runs over a curb and then picks up speed directly heading toward Harry. Of course, Harry turns around, pulls out the Smith & Wesson, fires off a couple rounds, which do no damage to the oncoming car. That car suddenly stops for some reason, and the three thugs pop out with automatic weapons, firing their machine guns, and just unloading on Callahan and his car, and just bullet holes riddling everything. And, of course, Dirty Harry manages to evade all the bullets, and he runs up some stairs. Pretty good. Not bad for... Eastwood, like, I think he's probably got to be around, what, 51, 52? Yeah, yeah, figure 93. So he gets to the upper level of this rooftop parking lot where all of a sudden he momentarily at least disappears. Then these three thugs and their machine guns get up the stairs and they slowly creep down this walkway and they see a few barrels off to the side. Two have covers on them and one does not. And they decide to, well... Just ignore that. It'd be way too obvious if Harry was in that open barrel. And then they come across along the walkway, this sort of, I guess, closed container, if you will. It's kind of, it seems to be locked off, but it could house someone if somebody could be hiding in there. So they assume that Dirty Harry is in this container and they just point their guns at it and blast away. They must fire like a thousand bullets into this thing. They really make sure anything, if it were alive in that container, is now dead. But lo and behold, behind them, yes, indeed, in one of those barrels they just assumed nobody was in, Harry pops out. He pops up behind them and just blows them away once again with his Smith & Wesson and kills them all. That's what I signed up for. I just enjoyed that moment because I was like, when I was watching this Bill Band, I was like, oh, this would be great if they assumed it was way too obvious that Harry would be hiding in one of those barrels. So they just walked past it. And sure enough, he was in one of the barrels. I was like, oh, that's great. I love it. They're just idiot bad guys. And they just ignored the barrels and that's what they get. But unfortunately, there was a fourth henchman that was the driver of the car and he uh, gets away only to show up later. But I think it's interesting, Bill Bant, because now that I do think about it, this whole storyline is just totally unnecessary, completely has no bearing or any real consequences in this movie at all. But I found that moment entertaining. Yeah, there's another one I almost put on my list. And it's funny, too, because I kind of forgot what happened in that scene. And when they were going down the hall, not hall, but that walkway, yeah, the walkway and you see the barrels and I was like, oh, they're going to look in the barrels thinking he's in there. I thought the opposite. And then he's going to come out somewhere else Mm -hmm. because I thought he was further down. I didn't even think he was in either of those containers. So the fact that he was in the barrel came out. See, you should have checked in it. Should have checked in it. But yeah, that storyline does kind of end about midway through the movie when Harry finally gets the driver. It just stops right there. Oh, yeah. And it's hilarious because I have that in my complaints. Gotcha. That's hilarious. What do you have next for favorite scenes or moments? I'm going to call this one. uh, Harry is always working. So after your scene where the thugs... um, try to attempt to kill him. His supervisors tell him it's time for him to take a vacation. And of course he doesn't want to, but they're like, Hey, you know what? You need to go to San Paulo anyway, investigate the initial murder that we see in the opening scene. He's from there. So maybe you can get some information. 
So, of course, right when he arrives in San Paulo, he's uh, in his car and he happens to witness a uh, bank robbery. So, oh, man, this is right up Harry's uh, alley. And he's kind of watching this play out. And it's just a lone bank robber. And he comes out of the bank and we see a police car pull up and the police officer tries to stop him. And the bank robber shoots the officer and the officer goes down. So Harry's like, all right, well, it's time for me to step in and take charge. So he pulls his car up and tries to stop the robber and the robber takes off. So now we now we have a foot chase. We have a foot chase in the streets. They're running for a while and the robber turns down an alley and Harry's chasing him. And then he goes across the street and the robber almost gets hit by a sob. Oh, my God. Terrible. But he's able to avoid that and grab a traffic cop trike. And he takes off on that. And now Harry comes down the alley and sees all this takes place. And now he needs to find himself some wheels. So he ends up uh, commandeering a uh, shuttle bus. And uh, it's a shuttle bus for uh, retirees, senior citizens. And when he goes to drive off, he realizes the shuttle is half full of some retirees. And he turns to explain to them that he's trying to track down a bank robber and all the people in the bus are all excited. They're like, go get him, go get him, go make it happen. So now we have a chase scene with a shuttle bus and a trike. And the reason why I like this scene, and I think talking about the humor, this reminds me of something from like a Roger Moore, James Bond. I think that's what they were trying to do with some of this. I think that's where the comedy was coming in and these kind of weird, implausible scenarios happen because somehow the shuttle bus full of retirees catches up to the trike and is able to run it off the road. The guy flips over a flower bed. Harry gets out of the shuttle, grabs the guy and basically says, all right, time for me to read your rights. And of course, at this point, all the retirees are getting off and like, yeah, that was great. That was the best thing that's ever happened since I went to the home. It's super silly. It's so not Dirty Harry, but it so seems like it was influenced by the James Bond movies, of the Roger Moore James Bond movies. And I think that's why they put it in, kind of like the homage. Like, if you told me you hated the scene, I'm totally cool with it. But when I watched it the second time, I was kind of like, oh, yeah, I could totally see Roger Moore behind the wheel right now doing this. Oh, totally. Chasing someone down. I think that's what they were kind of going for with this, with the more of the one-liners. And more of the, the silly kind of a little bit of the silly action sets in there. This is the main one. I thought this was absolutely ridiculous. It was kind of dumb. And I think you make a great point, however. What a great, great comp to a Roger Moore, James Bond. And I totally respect your opinion in thinking it was just fun. Because, yeah, absolutely. Is it fun? Sure. In a different movie? Absolutely. <laughs> It is so out of place and weird in this movie because if we're going dark, if we're going violent, if we're doing a Dirty Harry movie, we don't need an injection of some silly chase sequence, which is just a series of of coincidence and everything just happens too easily. I have it in my complaints. I'll get into it later, but I, I love, love the fact that this is one of your favorite scenes because, hey, man. I got to take it easy on this movie a little bit. It is fun, and I just think it's a great call to... They're probably somewhat self-aware that this movie is violent and dark, etc., but they just they got to go with the trends of the time. And yeah, we were getting Roger Moore Bond movies, and those were popular enough, that's for sure. 
So we got to lighten it up a little bit. Let's put a little levity into it. He's driving a retirement home shuttle with retirees in it in the middle of a cop chase. <laughs> what are we doing? Good stuff, man. That I'm. <laughs> that's great that you you chose that. I find that very entertaining. So we're definitely going to have crossover here. I think I'm going to probably let you talk about the particular shot because it's pretty iconic, I think, unto itself. It's a pretty amazing shot. So I'm going to skip over it in hopes that you'll describe it. But I'm going to set up this scene and it's it's the end. It's the finale. Oh, yeah, exactly. Of the film. And just to set it up a little bit, we know that Dirty Harry has been using his Smith & Wesson revolver throughout this film, blowing the bad guys away with some great gun sound effects. We do get one scene of him doing some target practice in the woods somewhere in the forest where he's putting up one of those target sheets. He nails it to a tree and we see the reveal of a new weapon that he's gotten a hold of. And that is a Magnum automatic. This is not a revolver and it's a big gun and uh, he's firing it off blowing holes and practicing, basically getting the feel for the gun. So This literally is Chekhov's gun. We know this is going to appear later in the film at some point. Now, cut to the storyline of Jennifer Spencer, because we understand at this point, she's the killer. She is the the killer that Dirty Harry has been trying to track down throughout the film, because these murders keep happening, and these murders are definitely connected. They are all members of a particular, let's say, a circle, a group of thugs or gang members whom had raped Jennifer and her sister 10 years earlier. They even did so much damage to her sister that she ended up in a mental ward, some sort of hospital where uh, she's catatonic. So Jennifer took it upon herself to exact revenge, and she's been killing these gang members one by one here in the present in 1983. And she's gotten down to basically the last one, which is Mick. And Mick at this point in the film is joined by the Kruger brothers. But at this end here, she's killed everyone exacting her revenge. And it's down to this one bad guy, Mick, and these two other guys that he's joined by, known as the Kruger brothers. Okay, we got that. Well, unfortunately, at this point, the bad guys, Mick and the Kruger brothers, have gotten a hold of her. They've captured her, and they've taken her back to the scene of the crime 10 years prior. They've taken her to the beach outside the boardwalk. This is supposed to be San Paolo, and they've taken her to the actual site where the assault took place, jarring some very traumatic memories for her. Uh, she does try to kind of defend herself, and she she does, actually. Uh, she doesn't try. She does. She mouths off to Mick, kicks him in the nuts, and actually smacks him in the head with a piece of wood and manages to run off, and they have to give chase. And she goes back onto the boardwalk and goes into the carousel area where she was going to be renovating the horses on the carousel because she is an artist, she's a painter, and she was going to clean up these old horses on this old carousel. And this is kind of cool, and it's kind of creepy because it's all dark, it's at night, and she manages to run through the carousel area as the baddies are chasing her. And there's a lot of broken glass, and there's a lot of chasing, chasing, chasing. Man, she gets the hell beaten out of her. She gets the crap beaten out of her in this. This part is tough to watch in the film, I have to admit. This is not really the 
favorite part of a favorite scene here by any stretch of the imagination because the bad guys had really beaten the hell out of her, but she had gotten away. We have the chase throughout the carousel area. She managed to get out of the carousel area, but they catch up to her eventually. I'm skipping the minute details here, but they do catch her once again. And now this is no good because she's done a little bit of damage to them, namely Mick. And Mick's got a shotgun and he's pointing the butt right at her face. And he's about to bash her head in, basically, when who finally appears? Yes, Dirty Harry, of course. Callahan is down the way. And we know at this point he's pissed because I didn't mention the fact that the bad guys had gotten a hold of him and beaten the crap out of him and left him for dead. He had rolled off the pier into the water and he survived that, goes back to his hotel room to find Horace dead, unfortunately. But then he's pissed. He's super pissed. And he pulls out the box, the gun box with the Magnum automatic in it. And we're like, oh, hell yeah. And now cut back to this scene outside the carousel on the boardwalk. And bad guys were about to do away with Jennifer when Callahan shows up with the big gun. And I'll let you take it from there, Bill Bant, if you want to. Yeah, so Mick is about to pop Jennifer in the face. And one of the brothers is like, oh, my God, like he's almost seen a ghost because to me, this is the best shot of the film. So it's the opposite end of the boardwalk. We had Clint Eastwood there with the 44 automag and he's completely silhouetted. It's backlit. So all you can see is his outline. You can't see any features on him. And it is cool because you see him, he's holding the gun out and it's a huge MF and gun. And the other three guys are just staring because they don't believe what they see. And Harry starts walking towards them and they keep him in the dark. So the way that it's backlit, great. Cause you just do not know if I was one of the three guys, I would not be a hundred percent sure that that was Harry because last time I saw him, I kicked him off the pier into the ocean and, pretty much left him for dead and then he eventually gets close enough that now we can see that it's that it's harry and then the guys the two guys step away so they kind of have different angles at him because you know a shootout's gonna happen so they're not all three of them are together but that doesn't help because one of them literally goes behind it's almost like a bus frame kind of sign yeah and harry just sh- totally shoots through that shoots the other brother and then that just leaves mick And Mick runs off with Jennifer, and for some reason, they end up on the roller coaster. And just so you know, we're back at Santa Clara, a.k.a. Santa Cruz, which we just covered in Lost Boys. Santa Carla, yeah. Yeah, Santa Carla, yeah. I was going to say, we're we're missing somebody, though, aren't we? Who are we missing? We're missing a a sexy, sweaty saxophone player. That's true, we are. Or as, as you called him, the saxophone player the saxophone player yes <laughs> it's so great yeah man we're back we're back in the lost boys i love it i know and the carousel where we saw them in the opening of the movie and now here it is being renovated a couple years earlier and mick just thinks he has the upper hand the whole time and he's just talking smack with harry and harry's just basically just waiting for his opening and mick drags Jennifer literally up onto the roller coaster. You're thinking to yourself, where the hell are they going to go? And he's holding Jennifer up there hostage with the gun and keeps saying, Harry, why don't you come on up? Let's let's have a little fun. And eventually Jennifer gets away. And of course, Harry with the 44 mag, boom, 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 pops in three times. 
he goes tumbling off the uh, roller coaster yeah. right onto the carousel right through right through one of the heads it just impales him and the unicorn horn yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, man, it's a great death. Mick's death is fantastic because he falls off the top of the roller coaster all the way down. It's a fun stunt onto the yeah the top of the unicorn. It's just gruesome and it's awesome. I'm like, oh, that's pretty great. Yeah, I think he, before that, oh, go ahead. He gets shot. He falls, goes through a pane glass roof, yeah, and then gets stunt. impaled. Brutal way to go. Yeah. I think there is a callback to the iconic line there, too, right before Callahan shoots him. He does say something to the effect of, come on, make my day. Yeah, he does. And he does kind of repeat it. That's when Jennifer elbows Mick and gets space, which allows Callahan to get a clear shot at him. Just blows him away. The silhouette shot is just awesome. The silhouette shot of Dirty Harry standing there, man, is just incredible because... Hey, Clint Eastwood's silhouette is amazing. I mean, it goes back. You can, there's shots from the westerns and such where you see him from a distance, and it's just you can't. He's very identifiable just from his physical form. You don't need mm-hmm. to see his face, and you just know, oh, that's Clint Eastwood. Great silhouette shot, and I love that you called out the, the, because we know the gun is very powerful, and it is so violent. When that one brother ducks down, yeah, behind the signage or that decorative piece of whatever it was, and he shoots that guy through the sign, like it goes through the sign, through the cheek of that guy's face, and you see the hole. It almost looks like a metallic hole coming out of his face. Really, really violent. You're like, I screamed out loud. I was like, oh, like, here we go. (laughs) Like, oh, no. Oh, boy. Pretty decent finale to sudden impact i think it would have made more sense if they kind of went through the under carriage of the roller coaster not on top of it but go go through it instead yeah mick didn't think it through let's just put it that way not not a lot of thought put into it he's just your stock bad guy who's a moron he laughs a lot in a very creepy way and he's sweaty all the time he's just running around doing bad things with no forethought it, with like a boardwalk like that too. Here's here's the funny thing. You know what that makes me think of? If you, myself, Marwan, and Chris and Pat, these are our, our friends from the UM that we uh, are lucky enough to work with today still in the creative industry, were there on that boardwalk, all we would come up with are different action scenarios. We'd look at it going, oh, this would be a great action set piece for, we could run under here, do this, that, and choreograph something and just have fun with it because that's what we do and we're all together like at theme parks because theme parks make great sets for action scenes. And this guy decides just to go straight to the top of a roller coaster just because it looks cool for the final shot of the movie and for him to fall to his death. It doesn't make any sense. What You, know, you could have done so many other cool things like a cat and mouse chase throughout like you said, through underneath the coaster and whatever. Yeah, you know what it reminded me of? And I'm sorry, audience, because this is going to be as inside as inside can get. We had shot a Miami Vice episode when we went to college together. And in the middle of campus at University of Miami is an Olympic-sized pool. And in the pool, there's a 10-meter platform. And we wanted to film ourselves jumping off the 10-meter platform. So, of course, all the drugs for this (laughs) Miami Vice episode were on the top (laughs) Of the yeah. ten meter platform, and then we had to jump off it, right. and that's what it reminded me. He was going, I was like, "Oh yeah, he's climbing up the ten meter platform." That's basically what it was. So anyone that went <laughs> to UM will understand what I'm talking about. All the other listeners, like, no clue. Oh, the years at University of Miami and jumping from high platforms into bodies of water, mainly pools. 
just great, great stuff. Uh, yeah, did, I'm sorry. Did, did you uh, have anything else for this segment? I'm ready to move on. All right, cool. Let's do it. Hello, this is Jason, co-host of the All 80s Movies Podcast, with a message from Factor Meals. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer, thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you will always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you will always have new flavors to explore. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. So let's move on to Swiss cheese and complaints. And uh, why do we call it Swiss cheese? Because although this movie is delicious, it does have 44 holes. But it doesn't have those 44 automatic holes. We just file a complaint with the complaint department. So, Jason, what do you have for Swiss cheese or complaints? I've got a few complaints here. It's all a lot of fun, though. You know, I mean, Callahan blew away how many guys? Four? No, three guys in the coffee shop scene. And, of course, I'm thinking, man, there would be a serious investigation of his conduct, even if it was validated or that, you know, obviously could explain it's self-defense and he's trying to save the customers. But there's all kinds of stuff that happens there. And it's just, again, you know, even before that, when he assaults the guy in the elevator... That particular scene, he just literally gets away with murder. We got to go with it, but I still have to call it out, I think, a little bit. It is borderline ridiculous how it just seems like he just goes from scene to scene, blowing people away. But yeah, that that was just kind of my first comment and or complaint. But I've got plenty more. What do you got, Bill Bant? Okay, I think I have a possible Swiss cheese here. All right, so at the very, very end of the movie, we know that Jennifer, uh, Sandra Locke, has killed basically all of these people. And Harry has a choice. He's either going to arrest her right. or let her go. And the police show up and say, hey, we found this 38. And Harry sa- basically says, oh, the gun was mixed. Um, you'll notice it's probably the ballistics will match the other murders. So he was the one that was murdering everyone else. So he's letting her go. Okay, fine. But earlier in the movie, Jennifer goes to see her sister and when he goes to see her sister, she talks about how she saw the first of the rapists and she buys a gun. She tells her this. She bought a gun, picked a guy up and killed him. Now, this gun is the major piece of evidence for uh-huh. these murders. Sure. The gun's going to go back to her. It'll get traced back to her. Yeah. So unless she had gotten the gun illegally, they might have got away with this, but they're going to figure out that they're going to have to tie her back in somehow. So I, I don't think she's getting away scot-free. Great call. That is playing the tape back, man. That's like, that's pretty good. The only way she could explain it is if like she had, let's say, bought the gun for self-defense and went after Mick first and some, and like said that he had gotten the gun from her and that he then killed everybody. But it just would be really hard to explain. No, Because yeah, yeah, he's in Vegas when we first see him. That's right. So he'd have an alibi too. Good call, man. I think that, yeah, for sure. She's in trouble. Great call. 
So speaking of this guy from the, I forget what the character's name is, but that courtroom scene where the, the kid gets away with the, the crime, he gets let off because of the illegal search. Oh, Hawkins. Right. So he does come back. His name is Hawkins. Okay. He comes back a little bit later in the film and he comes after Callahan with his crony friends and tries to run him off the road using bats and Molotov cocktails. So he and his friends are, they drive right up alongside Callahan and his car and they're like running up against him, reaching out of their windows with bats, bashing the glass windows in of Callahan's car and then light these Molotov cocktails, throw them into his car. One goes in the backseat, explodes, setting the car on fire that Callahan's driving. The other Molotov cocktail goes right through the driver's side window, barely missing Callahan and going into the passenger side down under the floor. And now Callahan manages to stop his car, which is on fire. He gets out and he uses the one Molotov cocktail that did not explode from the passenger side. And the bad guy's car is coming at him and he throws the Molotov cocktail onto the windshield of the bad guy's car, which explodes and there's fire spreading across the bad guy's car's windshield then the bad guys hawkins and crew drive their car right off the pier into the water and it sinks and then it cuts to like the next morning when they're pulling the car out did they all die from that did they die was that the assumption i kind of thought about that and it's funny it is in my complaints too the same thing i'm like you're gonna come after dirty harry with just bad why would you yeah why would you even do that in the first place right that's a complaint that's just stupidity you got away, you got off, you got off scot-free. You, d- you didn't have to go to jail for a crime that probably clearly committed. And so you're going to go after the cop that tried to bust you by assaulting him with a vehicle and Molotov cocktails and bats, and you're going to kill him? That's your plan? But then my other complaint was like, how would they have died? They're, all their windows are open, and yes, the car goes off into the water, but they could have easily gotten out. I I thought I about that too, weird. but I it's think weird... it's almost it, it's almost like people dying when they jump off a bridge because you hit the water at such a speed, even though it's water, you're still. And I think that's what happened to them. I mean, basically, drop driving off the pier, hitting the water was like hitting a brick wall. So maybe one of them could have survived, but I can see it's possible they hit it so hard they snap their necks or fall unconscious and drown. I wasn't sure at first too. I'm like, oh, I wonder if they survived or died. But then when I thought about it, I'm like, that's a possibility they could have died. One of them, two of them, possibly all three. Yeah, it was, it's a weird sequence. It's cut a little weird, and it's just with the Molotov cocktails and cars on fire. And, mm-hmm. and why are these kids doing this to him in the first place, which is a great point. But it's all supposed to just be this catalyst in order to have Lieutenant Donnelly then tell Callahan, all right, that's it. Okay, you're obviously not taking your vacation if you want to work, then I'm going to put you on this case, this other case, which is going to take you out of town. It's going to take you to San Paulo. So it's like, okay, either you find trouble or trouble finds you. That's what the scene is kind of like there for, but it's still a mess. I did like the shot that you could actually see that it was Clint Eastwood driving the car with the fire. Oh, yeah, that was that I liked. But yeah, the rest of them, like you are the three stupidest people. You're about to die. Yeah, sure enough. They deserved it. They should have hooked up with the henchmen, then they would have been fine. Right. But yeah, I had that down also. Yeah, so this is my complaint. Even though it's a cool scene, you know, we have uh, Harry Callahan thwarting the robbers at the cafe. And I was thinking to myself, Jason, if I came to you and said, I need money, I'm going to rob a cafe. 
wouldn't you tell me that's probably one of the stupidest ideas? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you have four guys, but how much money are you going to get out of this? I mean, it's a small time cafe. Yeah, right. I mean, maybe if you're lucky, a few hundred bucks. Yeah. That's a one-person job. Right. It's overkill. I was like, if I'm having four people, we're robbing a bank or a jewelry store, Mm -hmm. not a dinky cafe. Yeah. Agreed. I'm not robbing a cafe where I'd have enough money for four days. Those small-time robberies don't just don't ever make a great deal of sense. And it is overkill with that many people. And I think, obviously, they're attempting to steal as much as they can from the customers, but that's so unpredictable. You don't know how much the customers are going to have on them right. as far as jewelry and watches. What is I mean, granted, back worth? then, they'll have more cash than you would if you tried it today because everybody would yeah, have that's, you that's know, plastic. Yeah. But still, that's that's not enough. And then you have to split it four ways. Good point. Not worth it. Nope, not worth it. Great call. Uh, speaking of favorite scenes, yeah, that scene with Callahan chasing the bank robber in San Paulo in the retirement home shuttle and the bank robbers on the trike, as you said, uh, it is a bit ridiculous. It is a series of coincidences. The fact that Callahan drives into downtown, like the downtown square area of San Paulo, and there just happens to be a robbery happening at the exact same moment. Well, isn't that convenient? Just in time for him to save the day. And then all of the ridiculous hijinks kind of follow. But I love the fact that then that sequence ends with him, like as you said, running him off the road, running the robber off the road. And we see the actor that plays the robber is clearly a stuntman that's on the bike. If you slowed it down, you can see him actually preparing to jump off the bike yes, you do. as it hits the flower bed to perform the stunt of flying off the bike. It's so obvious. It's like, oh, here comes my stunt. I'm going to literally crouch down, then jump up off the bike. It's really funny. And they just happen to land in front of Jennifer. Thank you very much. The last coincidence, yeah, being, yes, Jennifer Spencer happens to be there at the exact same time to witness Callahan apprehend the bank robber. Pretty funny. Pretty funny. Can't argue with you on that. But speaking of Jennifer, here's my next brief complaint because it's a brief scene when we know that Horace, who's a buddy cop of <laughs> Dirty Harry's, knows that Harry is in San Paulo because he was basically getting into too much trouble in San Francisco, and now he's been put on this case, which takes him to San Paulo. So Horace decides to play a little joke on him and buys Dirty Harry a bulldog, like buys him a dog that he places in Dirty Harry's hotel room in San Paulo. So that when... Dirty Harry gets back to his hotel. He sees there's a bulldog in his hotel. He actually gets assaulted by the dog first. But then we see this kind of adorable white little bulldog with a, a red bow tied around him. And it's supposed to be kind of a gift slash prank played by Horace. Now cut to Dirty Harry walking the dog in his jogger uniform. And who's coming the opposite way down the sidewalk but Jennifer Spencer on her bike. And it's the most awkward sequence. Yes. It's so weird. It's cut weird. It's just directed weird. Even the way she falls off the bike. It's so like she sort of stumbles because the idea is that she can't get out of the way of the dog. The dog's walking straight toward her and she can't avoid Harry and the dog. And she falls over onto the grass, onto the side as if it's some sort of issue problem thing. It's just really weird. So that's a complaint. It's just a weird. And by the way, the dog's name is Meathead which is really funny. Harry names the dog Meathead. 
So Meathead causing Jennifer to fall off her bike was ridiculous. Yeah, that scene was very silly. I didn't like it either. I don't have anything else. Uh, All right, I'll make this quick then. Speaking of Meathead, so we talked about the fact that earlier in the film, Dirty Harry inadvertently kills the crime boss, Threlkiss, and Threlkiss's henchmen then chase him on the rooftop sequence. He takes out three of four of them, three out of four of them. The last one survives. The last one tracks him to San Paolo and decides to hole up in the hotel room next to Dirty Harry's. And when Dirty Harry in his jogger outfit comes back with Meathead the dog to his hotel room, Meathead stops and starts sniffing the door next to Dirty Harry's. And that's where the final henchman is. And he pops out with a one of the guns with the uh, silencer on it. Misses. He tries to shoot Dirty Harry, misses him. And Dirty Harry, of course, then blows him away. And I'm like, oh, so Meathead is able to sniff out the bad guys? Right. So is that why Horace bought him for Dirty Harry? <laughs> Knowing that. Why did Meathead know the bad guy was in that? It just made no sense to me. And my last complaint is, unfortunately, Pat Hingle, who plays Chief Jennings of the San Paulo Police Department. Not his best performance, in my opinion. He's been in several other films. He's done a lot of work. I like that actor. But he's way over the top in this movie. And unfortunately, his character is a bit of an idiot and way too obvious about blocking the investigation in the film. He's just so obvious about it. Dirty Harry knows pretty much from the get that he's holding up the investigation. Like, what are we doing here? Why are we wasting anybody's time with this? Since you brought that up. Yeah. I'm still not 100% sure what the connection was. Like his son knew the gang of people that raped Jennifer and her sister. Right. But who his exactly son, were his they? His son was one of them. He was there the night he, right. he also committed the act. Right. Did they all go to school together? Like, it never oh, How did they explains. know one another? Yeah, it never explains that. Right. We just know that his son confessed to him the crime. Correct. And from the guilt of it, tried to commit suicide and then ended up catatonic himself. Yeah, because there's a picture of all of them right. in the chief's office. Right. We get no background of this group of people, how they met, how they know each other, what their motivations were, relationships were outside of just being, we're all bad guys. We're going to be friends then. Right. Because it was kind of Ray Parkins who invites Jennifer to the party. Ray, it's a woman. Is that what they were supposed to do? She was supposed to find people that these guys can take advantage of? I don't know. I Yeah, I mean, sure. You just kind of have to make it up. Yeah, it's funny because Ray is the name of the female lead character of the, the bad guys or bad girls, I should say, in a way here. But it was funny because I was like, Ray is an interesting name for a female character. And I am one that I've said many times on this podcast. I'm a fan of women having guys' names. And I was like, what's Ray short for? Or is it spelled R-E-Y? But I think in the credits you see it's R-A-Y. And I was like, I just thought of it in this moment is that could that be short for like Raylene or I just never heard the name no, Ray, no, a female either. person even. She's before. terrible. Yeah, <laughs> she's bad too. Yeah. Oh man, I hated her the worst of all of them. That doesn't yeah, make me I sound see. good saying that. She just made my blood boil. And I was oh, like, gotcha. hey, she's the just, character yeah. did. Yeah, okay. the character. Yeah, I was like, oh, perfect casting for you because I hate you. I I yeah, was so yeah, I I, I didn't feel like she'd suffered enough. Because what Jennifer would do is, to the men, she would shoot them in the genitals and then shoot them in the head. 
I was like, her, I'd make her suffer. She shot him in the chest and then shot her in the head right away. I'm like, yeah, let her suffer a little bit, then pop her in the head. I was almost going to pick that as a favorite scene, but I didn't want to glorify the violence for any reason. Exactly. I understand that. But it was good to see her get her comeuppance for sure. Mm -hmm. That character, because you you do love to hate her in this movie. Yes, exactly. That's what I'm saying. I just... So you're like, yes, cast Jennifer, take her out. And she does. Good call. Good call. All right. So was that it? Are we going on to the next? Yes, we are. And that is, hey, it's that actor. All right. So in this segment, we spotlight a character actor. You have seen him many other films, an actor making their big screen debut or an actor that makes an uncredited cameo. It's, hey, it's an actor. Who do we choose this week? This week, Bill Band, for our, hey, it's that actor. We've chosen Jack Thibault, or I should say it could be Jack Thibault. It is spelled T-H-I-B-E-A-U. That's, we'll say Jack Thibault, who plays the role of Kruger. He is one of the baddies, one of the crew that committed the vicious assault on Jennifer and her sister in this film. And Jack was born on June 12th, 1946 in Perth, Perthshire, Scotland. Jack Thibault is known for his roles in Escape from Alcatraz in 79, another Eastwood movie, where he plays Clarence Anglin. Uh, He was also in Lethal Weapon in 1987. He plays McCaskey. He was in The Hitcher, one of my favorites, as we well know. In 1986, he plays Trooper Prestone. And he was in six episodes of The Untouchables series from 1993. He plays George Bugs Moran. By the way, he was also in Any Which Way You Can, another Eastwood movie from 1980, credited as Head Muscle. Jack Thibault worked in numerous movies and television episodes up until 95. According to IMDb, he's still with us, but it seems as though he had uh, stopped acting after that. But hey, here's the real reason I chose Mr. Jack Thibault, and that is because he played the role of Lieutenant Ray Gilmore in one of my all-time favorite episodes of Miami Vice. That episode is entitled Shadow in the Dark from 1986. He plays the detective that loses his mind after going after a mysterious home invader before Crockett takes over the case and almost loses his mind by becoming obsessed with the case himself and the home invader. Jack Thibault in one of my favorite Miami Vice episodes, Shadow in the Dark. Great episode. Check it out. Jack Thibault is our Hey, It's That actor. Yeah. All right. Moving on to facts and trivia. What are some facts or trivia we have about Sudden Impact? Well, Charles B. Pierce, one of the writers on this film, wrote the line, Go ahead, make my day. The line was inspired by a warning that his father would say to Pierce when he was a child. According to Pierce, his father warned him, when I come home tonight and the yard has not yet been mowed, you're going to make my day. All right. Jeez, that's that's not very nice. (laughs) No. Not pleasant at all. So back in 2005, AFI, when they were doing their 100 years, 100 movies, they did... AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movie Quotes, and Go Ahead, Make My Day made number six on the list. Yeah, yeah. Back to our writers in the screenplay. The screenplay was originally written for a non-Dirty Harry movie with Sandra Locke, who was aging out of leading lady status at the time and was trying unsuccessfully to develop starring vehicles. When she couldn't get any studio to finance it, 
The revised script by Earl E. Smith and Charles B. Pierce was rewritten by Joseph Stinson into this Dirty Harry movie. All right. So the carousel that Jennifer Spencer was uh, renovating is the 1911 Loth Carousel located at the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk in Santa Cruz, California. In 1987, the U.S. Park Service declared the merry-go-round a national historic landmark, along with the boardwalk's 1924 Giant Dipper roller coaster. Uh I don't know if this is true or not, but this is from IMDb. I'm going to say it anyway. Correct us if it's wrong. It has been estimated that Clint Eastwood earned around $30 million for this movie. Around this time, Eastwood's salary on movies took 60% of the profit, with 40% for Warner Brothers. I know. I saw that at a couple of places. I couldn't believe that. I was like, how could a studio make that deal? Jeez. Writer, director, star. Yeah, that's true. But the fact that you're actually taking home more money than the studio, that's crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, this is another one trivia. I thought it was fun. I'm like, God, I hope this one's true, too. So the production company had to keep a diver on the set during the filming of the climactic scene filmed on the pier in which Callahan shoots the bad guys. When the gun would jam, which it did frequently, Eastwood, in a fit of rage, would throw the gun a considerable distance and sometimes off the pier itself. So a diver had to go over and retrieve the gun, then dry it out repair it, and then set it up for another take. Wow. That's great. I had read that that the gun would misfire, but yeah, I didn't know he was doing that. That's really funny. That's amazing. Uh, Lead actress Sandra Locke was older than all of the actors playing her rapists and 21 years older than the guy on the street who catcalls her near the beginning of the film. She was also six and a half years older than the actress playing Ray. By the way, it's actually spelled here R-A-E. I thought it was R-A-Y. It was R-A-E. Yeah, I had R-A-Y also. So she was uh, six and a half years older than that actress, who is clearly meant to be older than Locke's character. And ele- she's 11 and a half years older than the woman who played her sister, even though they're meant to be close in age. Yeah, she did have a good line when those uh, kids were kind of harassing her. Oh, yeah. I thought she was going to kill them. Right. They, they got away easy. No kidding. You got anything else? This movie was not the first time that Clint Eastwood directed himself as Dirty Harry, though it is the first entire movie where he did so. Eastwood directed the suicide jumper scene in the first film. Just that one scene in 1971. Time for some box office. So Sun Impact was released on December 9th, 1983 in 1,530 theaters. On an estimated budget of $22 million, it grossed around $67.6 million domestically. It debuted number one at the box office, beating out Scarface and Christine, which also debuted that same week. Sudden Impact would hold the top spot for another two weeks, then would fall to number two in its fourth week to Terms of Endearment. It would stay in the top ten for another six weeks making it the seventh highest grossing movie domestically in the United States for 1983. Moving on to reviews, when growing up in the 80s, we would watch at the movies with Siskel and Ebert to hear their reviews and watch clips of upcoming movies. Their review of Sudden Impact was split. Gene is a big fan of the Dirty Harry character, but thought the weakness of the movie is that it doesn't have a strong villain. Harry needs a villain that is just as strong as him. Roger, also a fan of the character, found the movie to be lean, focusing on all the good parts of a dirty Harry movie. 
Rotten Tomatoes gives it a tomato meter score of 53%, and it has an IMDb rating of 6.6. So this brings us to additional thoughts and questions. What are some additional thoughts and questions we have about Sudden Impact? Well, here's a a semi-easy one regarding our writer-director star Clint Eastwood. We are definitely familiar with him as a leading man and action star, but do you have a favorite film of his that he directed? I'll just throw out a whole bunch here for you real quick. Play Misty for me, High Plains Drifter, The Outlaw Josie Wales, Firefox, Tightrope, Pale Rider, Heartbreak Ridge, Unforgiven, The Bridges of Madison County, Space Cowboys, Mystic River, Million Dollar Baby, American Sniper, Sully, The Mule, I do enjoy Space Cowboys a lot. That's one of those, if it's on, I'll keep watching. You know what? I didn't realize he directed that one. I didn't either. You have to go Unforgiven. It's hard not to choose that one. Exactly. Here's one that I didn't mention. I did that on purpose because this would be my choice if Unforgiven weren't the clear favorite. Mm -hmm. My choice would be A Perfect World. Oh, yeah. Kim Costner. I love that movie. I love that movie with Costner. I think it's very underrated or maybe just... Just not mentioned enough. It's a good movie. Yeah, I've not seen that one in a long time. I found this very interesting, and I actually got this wrong. So that scene in the elevator in the beginning when he leaves the courthouse, and there's a a woman in the elevator with them. Yeah. And at first I was like, oh, crap, that's uh, Conchita Farrell, who I think most of us would know from Two and a Half Men. She was the housekeeper. Sure. And then I was like, you know what? I don't know. She seems a little young to be her. So it's like, let me let me look it up and see who it was. And I was wrong. It's actually Cameron Mindham, who, if you don't know, does it tell in the television? She was in the practice, uh, the Ghost Whisperer, and thirty-five episodes of various characters in Law and Order. And that was that was her film debut. That's just standing in the elevator watching Clint Eastwood uh, rough up uh, Hawkins there. Yeah, so that was kind of cool. Love it. So here's a question. Yes. Don't know if you'll be able to answer it, but Uh-oh. do Ka- no, no, it's simple. It's it's just fun. Do Callahan and Jennifer pursue a relationship after the end of this movie? Because they have a tryst, if you will. I mean, they do sleep together in the movie, but after he finds out that she is the killer and then lets her off, do they date? Do they continue to have any kind of relationship? No, nah, I think that's it. They go their separate ways? Yeah. Because we know she works on the carousel because we see the renovated one in Lost Boys. So <laughs> Callahan, he's a San Francisco guy, so he's got to go back to San Francisco. I have to say there is, if there is a through line here that could have been something or that I did like is the fact that obviously Callahan works a bit outside of the law, has his own brand of justice because the system doesn't work. The system has failed. It's the brass, right? It's the bureaucracy, et cetera. And obviously Jennifer shares the same sentiment. So they share that in common. There is a commentary there to be looked at. Are they more similar than not these two characters? You know, you could make an argument, but uh, so I thought that was interesting and, and could have been something more developed And if if they had decided to take these two characters and their relationship a little bit further in the film. Like I said in the beginning, maybe as if he didn't know, you know, if, had they met earlier in the film and he had not known she was the killer, et cetera, and they just pursued this relationship while we as an audience were watching 
uh, the crimes unfold and then the reveal being that she is the killer and he finds out she's a killer, et cetera. But anyway, yeah, I don't think they, they probably would have worked out. Although sometimes, you know, crazy attracts crazy. <laughs> I don't know. True. Because <laughs> she would have needed some help after this. I, I hope she sought some therapy after this was all said and done. Yeah, that's true. Here's another big question for you, Bill Bant. Mm-hmm. Does Callahan, does he keep Meathead? Here's a question. Is Meathead okay? He looked to be limping a bit after uh, there was a run-in there with Mick and the Kruger brothers in that particular scene where Horace gets killed. Yeah, he seemed more upset with Meathead getting kicked than Horace getting uh, he, Man, he got his neck slashed. I know. And I, was more, and I was like, yeah, I hear you, Harry. I was more concerned about Meathead than any other character in this movie. Yeah. Yeah, I think he sticks around. I want to watch Deadpool just to see if he's in it. I know. <laughs> that would be a good callback. My last question for you, Bill Bant. Is Dirty Harry then on the run from Thrillkiss's mob men, his hitmen, for the rest of time, for the rest of his life? We saw that, yes, Dirty Harry took out the four henchmen, the crime boss's henchmen, in this particular movie. But as we know from all of our other mafia movies we've seen, it's not like a crime boss or mafia boss sends four of his hitmen after somebody and then gives up after that. Yeah, I I mean, I don't even know how Callahan can even leave his front door because it just seems like everybody in San Francisco wants to kill him. Yeah, right. yeah, even when he it's meets true. It's true. Uh, Jennings in the first, Chief Jennings in the first thing he says to him is, oh, the famous Callahan. Like his, the word is spread. Everybody knows about this guy. Yeah. And once again, it's kind of the running joke with James Bond. Everybody knows who James Bond is. So how can you do, how can you do your job when everybody knows you're the famous spy? Yeah. I think the word's out. Yeah. He's got to take a test job. Sorry, Callahan. Yeah. All right. Let's move on to ratings. Jason on a scale of one to five, 44 auto mags. What do you give sudden impact? I'm giving this a 2.5, two and a half auto mags. This movie is, it's not a brain buster. It's a throwback to a certain type of movie, a certain genre. It's an acquired taste unto itself. But the execution here isn't quite effective. And as much as it pains me to say, Eastwood appears a bit slower in this movie. I know he's only 52. I mean, he got up the stairs in the one scene pretty well, but some of the action sequences where he's throwing punches just aren't quite as kinetic as some of the, maybe that's just due to the, the editing his own or his own direction. I'm not sure. Uh, the movie is very violent. It's very dark. It lacks some development and there's no emotional depth. If, and you know, like you said earlier, Bill Bant, it's always great still to see Clint Eastwood being Clint Eastwood, especially in this role. But if you want to see him, you know, really kick ass. There's about a hundred other movies you could choose from. It's just lacking. You know, there is some levity in moments that was just goofy and fell out of place, but it just doesn't really have any charm. Otherwise it's not sexy and it's kind of upsetting in moments. I mean, again, the treatment of the women in this film, no bueno. So, but, uh, you know, throw back to those seventies cop exploitation films when it comes to violence. So, yeah, just didn't didn't care for it overall. It has moments, but that wasn't enough to save it for me. So I'm just going to give it two and a half. Two and a half, 44 automags for me. Oh, just really quick before I get my rating, though. But I think what I did love about this movie is the way that Harry punches. It's always like a his fist oh, yeah. is always horizontal. <laughs> and he does like a straight up punching thing. That cracked me every time I was watching a punch. And I'm like, he's got the weirdest punch. But I like it. That's why you got to watch those uh, any which way you can or 
everywhere. Yeah, I got to see some bare knuckle boxing. Yep. That's a lot, a lot of Clint Eastwood punching in those. Definitely. All right. So you kind of gave it a negative 2.5. I'm going to give it the positive 2.5. All right. As far as Dirty Harry movies go, it kept me entertained. It's not great, but I didn't think it was horrible. I'd love to run around just shooting up people left and right. And uh, it definitely has all the Dirty Harry elements to it. This is probably one of the more comedic of the Dirty Harry movies. Um, And for the most part, I think it does work. But yeah, there's too much going on, which is kind of funny because I, you know, when I mentioned the Siskel and Ebert, Rod thought it was lean. I'm like, no, there's a lot on this. This could have been 15 minutes shorter, I think. And the amazing thing, this was the highest grossing of the Dirty Harry movies, but it's definitely not the best. I would definitely say if you're going to watch, if you've never seen Dirty Harry movies before, just watch them in order. This is not the first one you go to because it might leave a bad taste in your mouth. The first one is definitely a classic. For being a fourth, it's, I think it's fine. It's, it's, it's all right. It's exactly where it needs to be. 2.5. I love it. A positive 2.5 from Bill Bant. I, you know what? I'm bringing back big fun. Big fun, Bill Bant. Oh, awesome. Okay, that about wraps it up for this week's episode. As always, thank you so much for spending your time with us and listening. Please take the time to follow us on your preferred streaming platform. Give us a review and rate us. If you want to learn more about our show, you can visit us at all80smoviespodcast.com. For our next episode, we are sticking to the action genre as we will be discussing 1989's Black Rain, starring Michael Douglas, Andy Garcia, Ken Takahura, and Kate Capshaw. We hope you can join us. Have an excellent week, everyone. It's a question of methods. Everybody wants results, but nobody wants to do what they have to do to get them done. I do what I have to do. Thanks for staying up with us. Good night, world.